Good morning, everybody. Would you like to, uh, if you want to follow in the Bible, I'm reading a few verses from Hebrews and chapter 9. Good morning. It's good to see you. It's a beautiful sunny day. Trust we will be meeting with God as we hear his word. Hebrews 9, going to read a few verses. I'm reading from the NASB. One or two words will differ here and there if you use the NIV, but not greatly. Hebrews 9, verse 11. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation, and not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood. He entered the holy place once for all having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling those who have been defiled sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We know, Lord, that it's kind of couched in Old Testament thought. We know it seems strange to the ear, but we thank you, Jesus, that you shed your blood, fulfilling the greatest sacrifice the world has ever known. And Lord Jesus, we thank you, you conquered death. And Lord, we truly come to sing your praise, to magnify you, to enjoy you. We thank you that you are our shepherd. We thank you, lead us and feed us. And Father, we ask right now, in the name of Jesus, that the Holy Spirit will be our teacher. Come, Holy Spirit, please help us to hear your voice together. Please let us be changed by your word. We thank you, your word is light. We pray let the light shine into our hearts, into our minds. We ask it, Father. In Jesus' name, Amen. Amen. Paul, or at least the writer to the Hebrews, is saying that the blood of Jesus should cleanse our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. We might say, well, what dead works? What are dead works? Well, in the passage, it seems to be talking about kind of external religion, just going through the motions of religion that bring about death into the Church of God. If you travel around the UK, you'll find lots of buildings which used to be uh, places of worship. You can see from the architecture, you think, oh, that used to be a church. Uh, and now it's a warehouse or a library or a museum or even a mosque. And you think, oh, that used, people used to worship Jesus there. And uh, all over the UK, you can see those places that used to be centres of worship. And there came a season or maybe a time when gradually uh, that began to wane until, yeah, they closed. And what happened was that death crept in. I remember when Wendy and I had a, a tree in our garden at home and you saw kind of blight at the end of the branches. Um, not being very brilliant gardeners, we just watched it creep up until uh, the tree passed sadly away. And uh, death can kind of creep in. And it's very possible for us as evangelical believers to think, well, we're not into dead religion. We're not very impressed with externalism. We're not carrying many candles around here. Uh, we don't have many bells to ring. Kind of, they don't thrill us such, as such. But I just want us to be a little bit more self-critical, really. How, how can death creep in? How can it be that what was alive can become dead? Because here the scripture is talking about, look, cleanse your conscience from this stuff. And in Hebrews chapter 6, it says, repent from dead works. Get away from them. Don't get involved in them. So what are dead works? What do we mean by it? Well, let's just give one or two suggestions. First of all, I would say that a dead work would be something that isn't, by definition, full of life. It hasn't got faith in it. It hasn't got expectation. And it's very possible for us to go through our religious routine without any expectation, like this morning. I wonder if we've come this morning expecting God to work, expecting God to powerfully touch us. It was great to be here last Sunday night when God did a wonderful healing and God broke in and touched somebody, took away their pain. 
I wonder if we've come this morning thinking, I wonder what will happen. I wonder what God will do. I'm expecting God to do something. If we don't come with any kind of expectation, what are we doing? Why do we come? What's the point? You can creep into doing it because, well, we've already done it. I mean, it's Sunday morning. What else would I be doing? This is what I do. That's in danger of creeping towards being a dead work because, well, it's simply routine. One of the girls at the church I used to be in in Brighton, she said one day she asked her mother, why is it, Mum, that when you cook those Sunday roast, why do you cut off the two ends of the meat and put them on the top of the joint? Why do you do that? And her mother said, do you know, I'm not really sure. I, I've always done it. Mum did it. I think it may be to let the juices flow. I'm not quite sure, but we've, we've always done it. Uh, Grandma's coming at the weekend. Ask her when she comes. So Grandma came that weekend and uh, uh, my friend said to her, Grandma, why is it when we roast the joint, why do we cut off the two ends of the meat and put it on the top? What does that do? And Grandma said, you still do that? And she said, yeah, but why do we do it? She said, I used to do it because the oven was so small. It was the only way I could get it in the oven. The reason for doing it was long lost and uh, they're just going through the motions. And, and a dead work can be like that where we're doing something but we don't know why we're doing it or what we expect to happen. We're, we're not really full of anticipation. We're not coming with purpose. Mm, can just gradually creep into death. Or if it's not you know, fully formed faith. It may not be that we say, right, I do believe that so many people will, will be uh, healed or saved in the meeting. I know it. I'm sure of it. I've got faith for it. It may be, yeah, a work of hope. Maybe rather like Jonathan in the Old Testament. Jonathan the, went with his armour bearer and it says he went out against the, Pharise- uh, the Philistines. He went out against the Philistines and uh, he just said to his armour bearer, perhaps the Lord will work. And he kind of took his perhaps into the battle. Maybe. Who knows? And so, although it wasn't fully formed faith, nevertheless, let's see what God will do is the way in which the story starts. And actually, the story ends with a phenomenal breakthrough of the power of God. Because, well, anything's possible. Let's see what might happen. Let's see what God will do was the atmosphere of what he did. So, at least there was a hope, some sort of expectation that maybe God will do something. So without that, yeah, that could begin to creep into death. Or maybe a third one might be, let's call it a presumptuous work. What do I mean? Well, maybe best illustrated when, when Joshua and the army went into the land and there was Jericho and it says it was walled up to heaven. How on earth are we going to win the battle against this great city? And then he has an encounter with God, gets instructions And then you get that wonderful word in Hebrews 11, it says, by faith, the walls of Jericho fell down. I mean, they just did an incredible thing. They believed God, they saw God act. And then, then in one step, from faith and being dependent on God and very in touch with God, in one step, Joshua says, what's the next city? And someone says, oh, it's a small place, it's called Ai. And they say, oh, just send a few soldiers there. And they send a few soldiers and they're completely defeated because in one step they, they move from trusting God to, oh, we can handle this. Oh, it's okay. We could do this, we could do that. They, they kind of quickly forgot. They couldn't take Jericho. God gave it to them. They were in faith and obedience. They stepped into, well, we can do this. It became a dead work. God didn't own them. They were beaten. Or another uh, dead work, I would say, is a work that God didn't give you. It's possible to get involved like that. I know when Wendy and I were first uh, in the first church, I pastored when I came out from Bible college, and it wasn't far from the town I was raised in. And uh, I was very backslidden as a Christian, got saved when I was 16, but made a mess of it really, and not a very bright testimony at school, uh, really bad. And uh, some years later, I'm pastoring in a nearby town. And my old grammar school, as it happens, in Brighton, got in touch and said, could you come once a week to teach religious knowledge uh, on a Friday through the school? And it was a tremendous opening. Extraordinary. 
and uh, I was so excited. I can go back to my old school. I can, I can try and put right what I did so badly. I can make amends for what went wrong before. And I was really excited. And I'm saying, oh, thank you, Jesus, for this tremendous open door. Going into my old school, hundreds of boys. And it, it was one of those things where, you know, I'm kind of praying and there's no response. It's like, God, this is great, isn't it? Lord, you know, this is great, isn't it great? And uh, any enthusiasm? And I felt there's no, nothing's happening in my heart. And I, I, I said, Lord, this is a wonderful open door. And I felt God said to me, what did I call you to do? I said, well, pastor this church. Yeah, but, but Lord, that's such an open door. What did I call you to do? Yeah, pastor this church. And, and I had to say, no. In fact, I had a friend who was a, a Youth for Christ worker, lived in Brighton, and I got in touch with him. He followed it up, and uh, he looked after it. It wasn't, it wasn't for me. It's possible to say, well, somebody ought to do that. I mean, gosh, someone ought to. And, and look at that. I mean, that's another, someone ought to do that. Until in the end you're doing this, and you're doing this, and someone should do that. And then you say, how much faith have you got for I've got time for faith, I'm just doing this and, and before you know where you are you're just a busy Christian and where's the faith? Where's God? And so churches that used to be full of life gradually, for all sorts of reasons they kind of erode the life that used to be there because they get into stuff that they're not actually very full of faith for. Maybe just one more 1 Corinthians 13 says this If you give away 97,000 pounds without love it's nothing. If you speak in tongues if you prophesy if you understand all mysteries if you have faith to remove mountains if it's without love it's dead. So we can be again active but It's not love-motivated. So the Bible calls it a dead thing. God's not in it. In fact, it's interesting to see how how Paul wrote to the Thessalonians. In Thessalonians chapter 1, he says, I celebrate your labour of love, your work of faith, the steadfastness of your hope. Three phrases in 1 Thessalonians 1. You compare that with how Jesus wrote to the church at Ephesus in the book of Revelation. Well, he says this, I know your labour, I know your work, I know your steadfastness. He uses exactly the same three words. But notice, it's not no longer a labour of love, it's not a work of faith, it's not steadfastness of hope, it's just labour and work and steadfastness. It's like the heart's gone. In fact, he says to to them in this letter, unless you come back to the love you had at first, I'll remove your lampstand. I'll, I'll, I'll close you down. So he said, but I thought, I thought churches that closed down was the devil's work. Um, I'm not sure the devil's got authority to close churches. Jesus has. In fact, he said to Saul, King Saul in the Old Testament, he said to him, this day the kingdom is removed from you. Well, does that mean that, that, that Saul couldn't go into the palace the next day? Does that mean he couldn't sit on the throne the next day? No, it doesn't. He's, he walked into the palace. He sat on the throne. But God said, no, the kingdom has been removed. And David is being raised up. And Jesus is saying, unless you come back to the love you had at the beginning, I'll remove your lampstand. I think it's possible to be the pastor there the next Sunday. It's possible to have a meeting, but... I'd hate to be the pastor of a church where the lampstand, whatever that really means, has been removed, where Jesus is no longer owning it. So these, these churches, as I said, they, it's possible for churches to close, to, to find death creeping in. Beware the dangers then. The, the Bible says then, repent from dead works. And then, and then you think, well, what, why do Christians get into dead things? Why do they do them? Well, I think the verse gives us the key because it says the blood of Jesus cleanses our conscience from dead works. What does that mean? Well, I think it means this, that it's possible to do Christian works. Why do you do them? 
Well, because of your conscience. Because, well, I, w- I don't know what people to feel bad about me. I don't want people to feel bad about the church. And so we do things for conscience sake. Now that's a killer. That leads you into death. We do things as it were to justify ourselves. It's possible to find yourself doing that. To find yourself doing a Christian activity not because, wow, I've had my conscience cleansed. I've been set free. Jesus has given me grace. Jesus has saved me. I'm absolutely liberated by the cross so I'm free to do serve him from a joyful, released heart. It's possible to be the other way around and think, no, I want to prove to God that I'm a good guy. I want to prove to God that he, he can accept me. That I want to prove to others that I can be trusted. So I do things for conscience sake. I do things to impress Well, it says in Romans 4, as we're talking about grace these few Sundays that I've been speaking recently, it says in Romans 4, verses 4 and 5, to him who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly. His faith is regarded as righteousness. To one who doesn't work, one who's not trying to demonstrate something, but believes in a God who justifies not the godly, but the ungodly. You think, wow, God justifies the ungodly through faith. His faith is regarded as righteousness. Apart from works. He's not having to justify himself. He's not having to put on any kind of a show because he knows he's a a sinner. He knows he's dependent on grace. And he's accepted that and received that. And he's freed by it. Have you had that experience yet? See, when you ask someone, are you a Christian? If the answer is, well, yes, I do such and such. I, do, I go to church, I go, on, I go at Easter, I do, I do this. If the answer is, I do, I do, you know they've missed the point. You're a Christian, it's nothing to do with what I do. It's what he's done. And he justifies the ungodly. And that settles the deal. It settles, it sets us free. For me, this uh, could be illustrated again when I was back in this young, the church where I uh, spoke of earlier. Uh, we, we, we had an experience. We were a free evangelical church and God started pouring out his spirit upon people in a fresh way and the church was being transformed. But it was a, it was a, a season, it took a few years, from a rather formal uh, church to one that was full of life and blessing. and It took some time to bring that through. And uh, we were a bit kind of introspective, sorting out our things. And then there came the time when, in God's mercy, we kind of came through and things were going very well. And uh, we're not perfect, believe it or not, uh, but healthier. And I felt God said, you must be in more fellowship with other churches. You've been too introspective. So I went along to the local minister's fraternal and said, can we please come? And they said, of course, yes, you're welcome, which was very pleasant. And I started attending. And then soon after, a guy came to my door and said, "Uh, uh, good morning, I understand that your church is coming in with all the churches now. So I said, yeah. So he said, I'm so pleased to hear it. Uh, I said, I want to get in and fellowship with them more. I'm going to the fraternal. He said, good. Because he said, next week, all the churches will be going door to door across the town and we'd be putting envelopes in every door and then we'd go back a couple of weeks later and ask for all their money. And he said, I'm so glad you'll be coming in. And I said, "Uh, no, I don't think we'll do that. He said, "Uh, I thought you said you were coming in with all the churches? I said, yeah. And he said, well, we're all doing it. I don't think we were. He said, we all do it. And then he said, even the Roman Catholics join in. <laughs> now what was he trying to do? He's trying to get at my conscience. He's trying to make me feel bad. He's trying to, he's trying to say, what will we think of you if you don't? Now if you're vulnerable to that, you'll find yourself doing all sorts of things. But if you know, no, to him, he believes in him who justifies the, the ungodly. His faith is regarded as righteousness. So I could say to him, no, we won't do it, and I'm still righteous. Hallelujah. That's what grace, grace, grace sets us free from having to justify ourselves. I guess that will be dealt with quite quickly. That will go soon.
There we go. Profit. <laughs> so I didn't feel a shade of conscience because Jesus has, Jesus has cleansed my conscience. That means I can say no. It means I don't have to do it. It means I, I, I don't get on this kind of wheel of, well, I better do just Christian stuff. And you can find you do things and, and you don't want, you have the heart to do it. Like, would you look after the children? You think, oh, children, smelly, noisy things. Do I have to? Well, what would we think of you? Oh, okay, I'll help. See, and then so you say, oh, I'll do this, I'll do this. I, why? Well, what would they think of me if I don't? What would God think of me if I don't? No, my conscience is cleansed by the blood of Jesus. I don't have to do it. I'm going to say, no, and I'm still righteous. Hallelujah. <laughs> That's what the Bible is teaching. I'm, no, and I'm still righteous. See, at this point, all the elders say, stop him now. Get him out of here now. Stop him preaching this stuff. We'll have to do everything from now on. Now, look, let's just press on. First of all, the blood of Jesus cleanses my conscience from dead works, okay? What's the next thing? Well, the next thing is this. In order that we might serve the living God. God wants to be served. Let me just remind you of some very famous verses. It says in Titus, Christ gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good works. Right? God wants a people who are burning with desire, zealous for good works. Or again, Matthew 5.16, that men may see your good works and glorify your Father who's in heaven. So God is adding another dimension, that your good works glorify God. Thirdly, John 9.14, we must work the works of him who sent me. The night is coming when no one can work. There's a kind of urgency, there's a cut-off point. We must work now, because the time's coming when it's all over. The night's coming, that's the end. And then lastly, Revelation 22. Behold, I am coming quickly. My reward is with me. To give to every man according to what he's done. That's the last word in the Bible almost. I'm coming. I'm going I'm to give rewards to those who work. So the scripture is telling us actually God is looking for us to work. He's looking for us to work. So what is the scripture saying here? He's actually bringing rewards with him. If you'd like to just turn quickly to 1 Corinthians 3, I just want to end a little moment on here because it's important for us to see what the Bible teaches about these things. 1 Corinthians 3, I'll just read a few verses. Paul says he's laid a foundation in Corinth. He says let others build on that foundation. And then he introduces um, a kind of quality control thing. Verse 12, if any man builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each man's work will become evident. For the day will show it because it's to be revealed with fire. And the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. If any man's work which is built on it remains, he will receive a reward. If any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss. But he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. Right, so what's the Bible teaching here? is teaching that our works will be assessed. Every one of us will give account to God. It says we will all appear before him. And when it says that, dear friends, it, it's saying there'll come a day when we will be manifested, we will appear. It's not like, did you see John at the meeting? Oh yeah, he put in an appearance. It's not that kind of put it in an appearance. It's there'll come a day when who you are will stand before God. We will be manifest, the real person, the real Terry Virgo, the real whoever you are, you will be manifest before God. That's going to happen to every one of us and we will give account of ourselves. It's going to happen. That's what the Bible teaches. We will be assessed and we will be assessed with fire. Our works will be tested by fire, that's what it says, and if any man's work remains, comes through the fire test, he'll be rewarded. If any man's work is burned up, 
he'll suffer loss. Though he's saved, that's what it says, though he'll be saved. Because we're not saved through works. We don't say to God, look how much I've done, please can I come into heaven. We know that won't work. We know only the blood of Jesus can save us. We'll be saved by his precious blood. We'll be saved by he standing in our place, suffering on our behalf, we going free. He saves us. But our works, having been saved, our works will be tested with fire. And, and those works that stand the fire test will be rewarded. We get rewards. If our works are burned up, well, we suffer loss, whatever that means. But we, we'll be saved, it says, quite plainly. We'll suffer loss. There'll be some loss experience. What does that mean? Well, maybe Jesus gave us a perfect example when he went to the temple. It says he sat opposite the uh, treasury and a very rich guy came in and put his gift in. And he's kind of just very ostentatious about his big gift. And, uh, you know, I'm just generous. can't help myself. Uh, and then a little lady comes in, very humble lady, and she's just looking around, hoping no one sees. She puts a couple of coins in. And it's like Jesus says, let the fire fall on that. And it's almost like, right, let the smoke lift. Where's that guy's gift gone? It's gone. It didn't stand the fire test. Why? Well, because the motives were all wrong. It's without love. It's nothing. It was for the wrong reasons. And then you see the fire test coming to the woman's two coins. I can imagine, it's like Jesus putting in and saying, wow, gold, silver, precious stones. It stood the fire test. It stood God's close inspection. Stood the fire test. Some will suffer loss. Some will enjoy reward. Paul says in the next chapter what his, his response to that is. He says in uh, chapter 4, verse 3, it's a very small thing that I should be examined by you. In other words, I don't really care what you think. That's overstating it a bit, but that's what he's saying. A very small thing, I should be examined by you, or by any human court. In fact, I don't even examine myself. Now, that's in, a, that's in an epistle, when he introduces the breaking of bread and, and the Lord's Supper, and he says, let a man examine himself. And so, you've got to weigh one thing against another. It's good for us to be sensitive, but it's not like we're always taking our temperature, looking at the mirror and saying, am I alright? Am I getting on? It's not a preoccupation with self, surely. But he says, I, I'm not conscious of anything against myself, but I'm not by this acquitted. He's saying, I think I'm okay, but I could be wrong. Then he says this, but the one who examines me is the Lord, the fire test. Verse 5, therefore don't go on passing judgment before the time, but wait till the Lord comes who will both bring to light the things hidden in darkness and disclose the motives of men's hearts, then each man's praise will come to him from God. What a wonderful verse. What a scary verse. When the Lord comes, he'll bring to light the things hidden in darkness and disclose the motives of men's hearts. The things are hidden in darkness, things you don't know. It's like I'm, I'm going to South Africa on Thursday, we're going to do some meetings and stuff. It's like one day I stand before God, Terry, why did you fly to Cape Town? Why did you go to Zambia? Why did you... And God will... <laughs> it's going to happen. God will disclose the, the things hidden in darkness and the motives of my heart. And it's either all going up in smoke or it's going to be rewarded. And that's going to happen to all of us that we will have what we do inspected by God. That's, that, that, beloved, that's going to happen to you, that's going to happen to me. And a faithful preacher will tell you what the Bible says. That's going to happen to us. I'm going to be, God's going to say, why did you do this? It's going to disclose the motives of my heart. It's all going to be out, hanging out. Open. Then, 
you get a reward. We say, but we do rewards? What does that mean? Well, a great preacher once said, it's almost like God gives you a clean sheet, salvation is free. It's like he put a white robe on you, and then he gave you a needle with a golden thread through it, and said, now, just sew a beautiful pattern into that. I've already given you a white garment. I give you works that I want you to do for me. Now, just, just work that golden thread through. I, I, I want to reward you. Now, the danger is, dear friends, we, we don't actually believe it. <laughs> and we get confused. Why do we get confused? Well, we get confused by grace. We think, well, grace says we're all right. Well, grace says we're home and dry. Yes, it is. It's true. We're saved. We're justified freely by his grace as a gift. Hallelujah. It's all done and finished. We can celebrate it. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, I upward look and see him there. Who made an end of all my sin? We sang it. It's true. We're righteous before God. I hope you like the accompaniment this morning. But God wants to reward us for things that we do. Okay? We kind of invent little things that make it seem like that's not really true. It's funny, you can be, you can be in a meeting and, and you, can, you, can say, you can say, it's easier to say it to the keyboard player because it's more obvious, you could say it to the guitarist. That was beautiful. And the answer could be, oh, it wasn't me, it was the Lord. You know, if you heard people say that, oh, thank you, that was very lovely. No, it wasn't me, it was the Lord. You feel like saying, who played the bad notes? Uh, no, no, there were no bad notes, all right? But, or, or when they say, it wasn't me, it was the Lord, you feel like saying, the Lord? It wasn't that good, I mean, the Lord. <laughs> but, but people tend to say, no, it wasn't me. I, I know for myself, I've been in prayer meetings before, before a church meeting, and, and, and deacons pray over you, and they say, oh God, this morning, hide the preacher. We would see Jesus only. I mean, that's a frequently prayed prayer in certain circles. Hide the preacher. A friend of mine said, next time I preach, I'm going out there, I'm going to say, let us pray. When they close their eyes, I'm going down underneath. <laughs> See how they get on without me. It's like, hide the preacher. And some even old wooden pulpits had it engraved in here. Sir, we would see Jesus. You think, well, sorry, you're stuck with me. But you see what people are trying to say, but the danger is... You get the kind of idea that it's drain pipes only, blessed master, but with all your wondrous power. We, we don't count, we're nothing, we just, it's just God does it. And that, more recently, the one I've heard, most popular one I heard, was someone saying, God is looking for a faceless army. A faceless army. God, what does that mean? It means God loves anonymity. That's the kind of thinking behind it. God loves anonymity. But if that's true, why have we got all these pages of verses with all these dreadful names in here? You know, if, if we're great, we can tear those horrible pages out with unpronounceable, they embarrass preachers. Who can tear them out? God wants us anonymous. Hallelujah. Names are... No, no, it's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches very different. The Bible teaches in Nehemiah when they're building the wall. There's this guy, he worked hard. These guys were slow. These guys, and it, God's noting? Yeah. Yeah, he's noting. He's taking notice. He doesn't want a faceless army. He loves faces. He loves fingerprints. He makes them all different. He's going to reward See, the other thing that confuses is a prayer of a man called St. Ignatius of Loyola, who, uh, was, uh, who headed up the Jesuit movement, and uh, he taught the church this prayer, Lord, we do this not looking for any reward, save that of knowing we do your will. That's a lovely holy prayer, but it's, the danger is you're getting away from what the Bible says. We're not looking for any reward, so well, you know, it's not me anyway, it's the Lord, and God wants us faceless, and you put these fragments together and you come up with, it really doesn't matter. But that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says, one of the last statements of the Bible, Jesus says, I am coming. My reward is with me. 
that's, that's, that's the, 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 the angels will come, the trumpet of God. God says, I have my rewards. I want to give them to people. And we say, uh, Jesus, um, who's going to stop him? Who's going to say, uh, Jesus, uh, Jesus hold, on, hold on, Jesus. I know this is your big day, but hold on. Uh, take a seat, Lord. Um, rewards. I mean, Jesus. Listen, we've moved on from that, really. Is that a kind of really high ethic looking for reward, Jesus? Do you think maybe, do you think we could put you right on this? Who do you think's right, him or us? <laughs> I think we know no one's going to withstand Jesus. He's coming, he's going to come with fire to test the quality of what we've done. We're going to stand before him. So many of the parables say the same. So many of the parables. And yet we've kind of washed it down the tube like it doesn't matter. No, we will all stand before him. We will give account to him. And he will reward us. Now, some will suffer loss. Why? Well, because it was burned up. Why? Because the motives of the heart showed it wasn't what God was looking for. So we need to be careful when we preach grace that we're not missing something here. Yeah, we're saved by grace, we're justified by grace, and we're righteous. Therefore, we don't have to do stuff to justify ourselves. But what does that do? It clears the deck so that I can serve the living God. See, that's the difference between dead works. Why are you doing it? Well, someone's got to do it. Why are you doing it? I don't know, they asked me to do it. God is not glorified by that. God doesn't want that. It doesn't glorify him. It just shows the motives of your heart. Why do you do it? Well, someone had to. That's not going to do well. So what is serving the living God? Let me remind you quickly as we draw to a close here. Serving the living God, God is involved with. And so we read in uh, Mark 16, the Lord working with them. Oh, that's working with God then. In fact, it says in 2 Corinthians 6.1, working together with God. Living works have his involvement. He's with you in it. He's in you motivating you. He's with you enabling you. He's alongside you because you're doing the very thing he wants you to do. He's with you in it. It's not going through the motions. Don't know why we do this. We always did it. Someone asked me to do it. No, it's serving the living God and God's with us. It says in Galatians 2.8, He who effectually worked through Peter to the circumcised, to the Jews, worked effectively, effectively through Paul to the Gentiles because that's what God wanted them to do. They were doing the things that God wanted, not because it was a door there, someone ought to do this. Uh, I've just gone out, dear, uh, you'll find the cookings in there because someone had to do this. But what you called to be my wife? Yeah, but someone had to do this. Why? Well, see, we've got to be careful, beloved. What are we called to be and do? What come down from heaven? What am I going to? What does God want me to give account for? Not because well, someone should do this and this and this. Beloved, it lifts us to a new place of responsibility before God. Grace sets me free, not to get involved in dead religion. Will you get along? We're doing this. All of us are doing it. Would you get involved? I don't think so. What? No, I really fear God too much. I don't have faith for it. I don't feel God's particularly in it. Paul says, it's not a very small thing what you think about me. Because I'm going to stand before God one day. It's much more serious than what you think of me. That's going to happen to you and me. We're going to stand before God. And so, yeah, living works have his presence with us. Living works also express his will. See, it says about David, God says this, I found David, a man after my own heart, who will do all my will. It's almost like God's dancing around heaven. I found one who will do my will. When David died, he got this on his tombstone, David fell asleep having fulfilled the purpose of God in his generation. Wow, what a testimony. What a tombstone. He fulfilled the will of God in his generation. God's happy to say that about him. That's a living, that's serving the living God. Jesus said this, I've glorified you on the earth. 
I have done the work you gave me to do. So how can I glorify God on the earth? I wish I could be Billy Graham. I wish I could be Jackie Pullinger. No, no, this is how you glorify him on the earth. You do the work he gave you to do. That, that, that's, that's yours. It's something God. There are works, we're told in Ephesians 2.10, works foreordained of God for you to walk in, prepared beforehand. Things that are specifically yours, that give you dignity, that give you identity before God, things God gave you to do. Dead works are boring, they're grey. Paul said, I want to get hold of that for which God got hold of me. Is that a passion for you? I want, I want to lay hold of that. God laid hold of me, God saved me, God rescued me. And he had purpose, he had a meaning, he had a purpose in it. Paul says, I want to lay hold of that for which God laid hold of me. I'm not just doing stuff. What does God want for me? What is God looking for in me? Jesus was one day talking to a Samaritan woman and says the boys, the, the, the disciples came back and said, Jesus, have you had anything to eat? They went to buy some food. And they said, Jesus, and he said, I have meat to eat you know nothing about. This is my meat to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. That's my meat, that's my nourishment. And when he was on the cross he said, it is finished. It's not unfinished. It's done. It's a word that means accomplished. That's, it doesn't mean just come to an end. The Greek word means come to fullness, come to completion. I've glorified you on the earth. I've done the work. I've completed the work you gave me to do. On the cross he said, he shouted out, it is accomplished. I've done it. The two souls in the Bible, the soul of the Old Testament, when he died, he said this, I have played the fool. I have erred exceedingly, says in the King James. It's like Shakespeare's Richard II. I have wasted time and now doth time waste me. That's the soul. Then there's the soul of the New Testament. I have run the race. I have fought the fight. Henceforth there's laid up for me you mean you're thinking about the reward? Yes. Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown. Paul, you're thinking about the reward? Yes. That's why I suffered all this stuff. If we have hope only in this life, we're most of all to be pitied. Hebrews 11 is this book of heroes, this chapter of heroes, and again and again it says, looking to the reward. They suffered these things, looking for the reward. They had their eyes on eternal values. Short-term values did not grip them. Long-term values sure did. They were highly motivated by eternal values. The reward. Even Jesus. See, Jesus was not a passive sufferer. He's not like Gandhi. It says, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. It's not just passive resistance. He's got his eye on something. The bride. He's working for purpose. That's serving the living God. Setting us free from going through the motions. The blood of Jesus cleanses our conscience to serve the living God. To serve the living God. Last of all, serving the living God has his diversity about it. People don't, they give up on church and say it's boring. What a tragic thing that the church should be called boring. I love, I love these television programs you can see these days. We're so privileged, aren't we? We can see under the sea, we can see up in the mountains, we see these nature programs, they are breathtaking. Sometimes you have to turn down the voice because of what's said, but the actual sights you see, wow, the, the diversity, the colour, God, you made that weird fish, what a strange thing that is. And you've got all these different types of daffodil and all these different, oh, the diversity is breathtaking. But the Bible says this, the world will be wrapped up like a garment and thrown away. It's short term, the world. It's going to make a new heaven, new earth. 
What is the only thing that comes through? What's the only thing that lasts forever? That came to birth in this creation? The only thing that will last forever? Do you know what it is? It's the church. The church is the pinnacle of God's creative skill. It's the greatest thing. It's us. People say, well, I give up on church, it's boring. Wow, that church should be amazing. He's put his most creative skills into the church. And that's why he gives all sorts of gifts. He gives gifts of prophesying and healing and revelation and tongues, interpretation and prophesying and, whoa, this is amazing. Yes, diverse. Not all the same. The will of God has full of variety. And so we're told that as each has received a special gift, 1 Peter 4.10, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. The word varied could be translated multicoloured. I remember black and white television. It was very boring compared with colour, HD. Wow. This is much more attractive. God's multicoloured grace. The church is the most exciting thing on the planet. It's glorious. And we're in it. So the blood of Jesus should cleanse my conscience. I don't want to get into conscience work. I don't want to do stuff because, well, what will they think if I don't? What will God? No, no. The blood of Jesus has cleansed me. I'm free. If you're a Christian, you're free. You're not trying to impress God. We found someone who already impressed him. Jesus. Jesus has thoroughly impressed the Father by his obedience and I'm hidden in him. Hallelujah. I'm saved. Now I'm saved. I want to serve you, Lord. I want to give my life. I want to do stuff that will glorify you. I want in that day that when you look on me, you can be really proud. See, we get very sentimental at funerals. Whatever a Christian lives, they say at the funeral, well done, good and faithful servant. Hmm. Maybe. But the word of God is a little different. It's a fire test. So I want to stand before God in that day, having been given the gift of righteousness, and then say, enter in. Yes, so we don't get into dead works. Don't go there. We serve the living God. But the church is where we serve. When you're first converted... How do you serve? We say, well, my distinctive gift, I don't know what it is. Of course you don't. You're a young Christian. You do everything. Why shouldn't we? When we get started, we just get stuck in. But as we grow, we begin to find what our gifts are. It's a bit like little babies. I have the joy and privilege of, uh, what's the current count? 13 grandchildren. I'm going to see a new baby in South Africa when I get down there. I mean, when they're very, very tiny, you know, children, they, they don't have... They, they, you, have you ever seen a child It's lying in a pram and he suddenly sees his hand? You see him look at their hand. It's attached. Oh, it's me. You know. and, and they don't know what the bits are for. They think toes are for sucking. They think knees are for walking on. They don't understand what the parts of the body are for. But they can grow up. It could become an Olympic athlete. could be a gymnast. Gymnasts know what all the parts of the body are for. That's a mature body. As a church grows up and the Holy Spirit's poured out, you begin to discern where the gifts are. When you do that, wow, we are all blessed. Your gift of hospitality is awesome. Your gift of encouragement is breathtaking. Your prophetic utterances are amazing. You see, you don't, you don't find out what you're for. You don't say, my hand, find out what it's for by, you know, it gives a scratch. You think, oh, it's quite good at scratching. Oh, it's quite good at doing up buttons. How do my hands find what they're in the body for? They serve the body. And you find what you're good at. You don't say, hand, chop, go and wait on God. Find what your calling is. You just serve the body. And when you serve the body, the body is encouraged by your gift. Or maybe sometimes has to correct your gift. And that's where, that's where we need to be in a loving body. So maybe, maybe 
Maybe someone prophesies, and maybe someone says to them, that when you started, this happened to me this week, I was in a leaders meeting in this country, a leaders meeting. And the guy prophesied, and he started so well, and then it went on, and a little bit, and at the end I very gently said, bro, I just feel the last part, I don't know, I, I couldn't, I think about it. He said, oh, thanks so much. I thought the beginning was breathtaking, wonderful, but I just felt it kind of went over the top of it. Oh, thanks. Thanks for that. He was so sweet. Thank you so much. He didn't say, ah, I see. So my prophetic gift isn't appreciated in this church. I will take it elsewhere. (laughs) See, people do that. Immature people say, oh, you don't appreciate me. No, I do appreciate you and I want the best for you. And so we, we learn what the bits are for because of a loving body that approves, corrects, and helps us find our place. And we're doing the thing God wants us to do. So, dear friends, what are you doing? Well, I'm turning up. Great. Now let's build on that. I say, Lord, what is it? Why have you saved me? What have you got for me? I know you saved me because you love me. What do you want me to do? Start to serve and find what God has for you. Learn of God. Find your way. There may be some things you say, I'm sorry, I did that out of guilt. I, I really need to stand back from it. Would you please release me? I don't think I did it for the right reasons. You may have to do that. I did it because, well, I felt pressure. Or it may be you need to say, actually, when I started doing it, I really loved it. I actually love children. I, I just, I, I don't know, I've just got distracted. It began to become low in my priorities. I thought, oh, I've got to do this. But it didn't start like that, and I'm really sorry. I've slipped away from where I used to be. We need to just maybe come back to God and say, Lord, just renew my spirit, please. Because I really want to serve you. I really want to do it for you. And I'm sorry, I've drifted into something less than that. Let's stand to pray.